Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuan Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about China's relations with the Middle East and North Africa is Jenison Fulton. He's assistant professor of political science at Zaya University, Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. And he's also a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Jenison recently edited the Rowledge Handbook on China-Middle East Relations. As far as I know, from 1949 to 1978, China was not that interested in this region. I think some Middle Eastern countries were also firmly under the influence of major Western powers. Some of their governments even had relations with Taiwan and were not disposed to open up their international relations with the People's Republic of China. This has changed. And I think this Rowlich handbook really came at the right time. Your handbook offers in-depth views on China's rising role in this very important region. And I wonder, I may start by asking you to briefly introduce yourself. Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to to talk about this to a different audience. As you said, I'm a political scientist. I've lived in the Gulf in Abu Dhabi since 2006. About 2010, I started uh, working on my PhD, focusing on China's relations with the GCC countries. And I was interested in this topic because before I came here, I lived in Taiwan and I lived in Korea, and I'd spent most of my 20s following international relations of East Asia. So when I moved here and I started to see these patterns of engagement between China and the, the Gulf countries, I thought it was a really interesting and understudied topic. So that's why I chose to work on this. Well, why was there a need to create a handbook on China's relationship with the MENA region? That's a great question. I think the first reason, I'll, I'll lead you some of my thinking about why I did it. I was trying to imagine I'd finished my first book, China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies, And I wanted to do a more in-depth China Middle East study. You know, that's quite ambitious and maybe a little foolhardy because we're looking at so many different countries. You need so much expertise and, and language skills that I don't have. So what I started to imagine was what would a book that gave a really comprehensive view of China and the Middle East look like? I started writing down themes and then specific case studies that I would like to know more about. And then I started thinking, who do I know that's really good at this? And I started making kind of two columns in my notebook, subject and colleagues. And I started matching them up and mapping out this book. And I thought this would be a really good major book. And I was right. It came into be about uh, 26 chapters looking, I think, quite comprehensively at what China is doing in the region. You know, that's why I wanted to do it myself. But really, I think another reason why it's so important is that China's role in the Middle East, as in many other parts of the Indian Ocean region or Eurasia, or in the Global South, is getting much more intense, much deeper and multifaceted. And especially as the relationship between China and the US or China and the EU tends to deteriorate, a lot of what we see, at least in English, is, I think, a very facile or um, simplistic look at what China is doing in this part of the world. Uh, I do, as you mentioned, I'm part of the Atlantic Council, a think tank in Washington, 
I do a lot of events, public events or, or consulting events with Western governments or Western institutions. And it usually begins with questions that assume that everybody in the Middle East either has a negative impression of China or they don't understand China very well. And I thought it was very important for people, in, in the, especially in the West, to get a more well-rounded view of, of what's happening in the region, why China's here, why local states and actors are engaging with it, and what I think it means geostrategically for the next few decades. I have the honor to read a few chapters of your book, and I haven't been able to finish yet. I noticed you included an autobiographical perspective in the handbook, and it was written by a very famous scholar, Iza Shizhou. I get to know him because I was working on Xinjiang and the Uyghur issue, so I know about his work. I was really surprised to see that uh, you include his chapter, and so his kind of autobiographical perspective on China's relationship with the Middle East. Well, what is the rationale for including this kind of autobiographical perspective in a book? I find it very unique, and I would like to hear your take on it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it does seem an outlier when you look at the table of contents, which are you know either issue-specific or country or region-specific case studies. And then there's this autobiographical chapter. As you mentioned, Professor Shichor is a giant, the godfather in China-Middle East relations. He, he uh, started working on this in the mid-1970s. His first book, I believe, was published in 1979, and it really laid the, the groundwork for a lot of the, the work that those of us who followed relied on. So when I imagined this, as I said, I, I was making a list. Who would I like to work with? And of course, he's at the top. I still haven't had a chance to meet him in person, but hopefully uh, I will later this, this spring. And I wrote to him and just said, look, I, I want to write this. I want to edit this book. I'd be honored if you wrote anything. Do you have anything in mind? Um, you know, he's retired and I thought he might not want to spend his retirement writing for this project. Honestly, I wasn't expecting a response. I thought I'm sending this out to his old university email account. Maybe he's not using it. I got a response almost immediately. I was like a kid who got a letter from his favorite baseball player. You know, I told my wife, like, you won't believe who just wrote to me. And yeah, he was he was very positive in his response. Really just a, a lovely gentleman to, to correspond with. And he came to me with the idea of this autobiographical chapter. And at first I thought, basically, write whatever you like. You're such a, a giant figure in the field. The more I thought of it, it was really interesting because his career, as I said, goes from, I believe, 1975, when he started his PhD studies in, in London School of Economics, going from that period until now, tracing his engagement with the study of China in the Middle East really tells a story of just what's changed over those years. So the period, like you say, when China was engaging with a lot of non-state actors, when it was seen as a kind of a disruptive force in the region, and then it, when it started to develop diplomatic relations with the majority and then all of the countries in the region, the arms sales in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq war towards a more productive regional presence, he talks about his, his engagement with Taiwan, which of course we both think is very interesting. You know, really it just tells a story from one person's uh, perspective of how he's tracked the set of relationships over 40 plus years. So I thought it was a really unique, but a really uh, delightful chapter to include. Yes, and in one way, we can see also his intellectual journey. So Professor Izasi Shore, currently he's Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Asian Studies at the University of Haifa, and also he has a Professor uh, Emeritus status at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's really a giant, and I was so delighted to read his chapter. Well, coming back to the handbook in general, I wonder if you can share with some major takeaways from this handbook. First is, like I said, I guess when I started my chapter, the introductory chapter, I referred to uh, a bit of dialogue in an Ernest Hemingway novel when, you know, they asked this character, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, slowly and then suddenly. 
or gradually and then suddenly. And I thought that was an interesting metaphor because the suddenness in a lot of people's minds of what China's doing in the region. It seemed when I was doing my PhD from around 2011 until when I finished in 2017, people would often ask me, why are you doing this? How are you doing this? How can you write this many words on this topic? They, they sell cheap consumer products and they buy oil. That's the end of the story. And that was really, I think, how a lot of people seem to understand China's presence in the region. When I finished in 2017, I got my book out in 2018. I believe it was the week before my book was published, Xi Jinping paid a state visit to the UAE. When he was here, they upgraded the bilateral relationship to a comprehensive strategic partnership. They made a lot of talk about things they were going to do bilaterally. There's also a China-Arab States Cooperation Forum meeting that summer in which uh, China announced $23 billion in aid and development loans to uh, countries in the Middle East. And suddenly, everybody said, oh my God, this is a real thing. China's a major actor in the Middle East. But for those of us who have been looking at it for almost 10 years or, or, or longer, this was a very gradual progression. And I think it's just really at the point when the China-US relationship under President Trump started to become more contentious, that China's relationship in the Middle East became more concerning, maybe to some countries. And then it became a little more prone to mischaracterization in my mind. So one of the big takeaways, I think, is that this is a gradual and sustainable set of relationships. China has mapped out quite methodically how it plans to engage the region, which countries it wants to work with, which types of projects it wants to work with, and how they see it taking place over a long period of time, how it fits in with the Belt and Road Initiative, and in turn, how that fits in with a lot of local states' development needs, uh, which I think it explains why it's a, a sustainable approach to the region. So I think that's the big one. I think the other takeaways from an academic perspective is that until this point, you could do something like my PhD, which was a set of case studies looking at China's relations with three specific countries. And that would really be enough for people to say, wow, this is something really unique. China's got all of these different types of interactions with Saudi and the UAE and, and, and Oman. These days, I think it's, it's very obvious to everybody that China is a major emerging power in the region. So from an academic perspective, one of the big takeaways is there's so much work to be done, not on country to country case studies, but issue-based studies. How is China helping countries develop smart city technology? Or how does AI in the era of COVID or post-COVID, what does this mean for engagement? I think what we're going to see is a lot more research focusing on not just on country to country relations, but issue-specific relations. I have one question concerning China's rising role. My observation is China's importance still lies in economic and perhaps a bit of political interactions with the Middle Eastern countries, but not so much in military aspect. I'm saying this because I compare Russia's role in the MENA region, and I feel like Russia's role perhaps is a bit more comprehensive, also including this military intervention. Well, what is your take on this? Yeah, I think you're right. And if you want to look at it comparatively, I just published a report with my friend and colleague, Dr. Li Chen Sim. She wrote about Russia, I wrote about China, and we published this report for the Atlantic Council about three weeks ago, just looking across political, economic, security, and public diplomacy to compare how the countries shape up. And you're absolutely right. Politically, China is much more thoughtically engaged, I think. I mentioned the China-Arab States Cooperation Forum. They also have the uh, China-Africa Cooperation Forum, the FOCAC. So they've been in a GCC strategic dialogue. They've been working to create multilateral fora to engage with countries in the region. They have these uh, I mentioned also the comprehensive strategic partnership with the UAE. They have this strategic partnership diplomacy with most countries in the region that also formalize their engagement. So politically, they've, they've actually developed a pretty sturdy framework for working with most countries in the region. Economically, China's a giant. 
in the Middle East, and not just in trade, but also in, in finance, investment, and in contracting, and, and right across the board. Whereas Russia is, is a minor actor, in, except in a few niche things like arms sales or wheat exports, which I think is going to be an issue very soon with the war in Ukraine. But in terms of security relations, you're absolutely right. Russia has played a larger, a more robust position in the role in the region. Russia has been more willing to engage, to sell weapons really to anybody. Obviously, their the role in Syria to protect their own interests and, and propping up the Syrian regime really didn't earn it a lot of friends in the region. I think China has played uh, quite a modest role. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think first and foremost, uh, we can take it at face value. Chinese leaders always say, they don't want to play the same kind of role that traditional extra-regional powers have played in the Middle East, whether it's European powers like Britain or France or the U.S. currently that have played this outsized military role. China keeps saying they have no interest in that, and actors in the region appreciate that. You know, they like to see a major power not look at the region like a piece on a chessboard. It's also consistent with China's development-first approach. You know, if you look at China's transformation from the, the Mao era through Deng Xiaoping until today, China's achieved these gains not through military adventurism, but by development, by focusing on increasing their, their economies. And this, I think, extends to a lot of their foreign policy in the region as well. So when they talk to actors in the Middle East who will say, will you play a more bigger role similar to the Americans? And they say, no, a militarized approach leads to more military instability. A developmental approach can create more jobs, create economy, and take away some of the destabilizing factors like terrorism, or economic despair or, or underdevelopment and the political and social problems that causes. So I don't see China really willing to engage on that. You see small things, modest arms sales in the region, but these are mostly things that local countries can't get through traditional vendors of choice like the U.S. For example, the U.S. and the EU have congressional or parliamentary restrictions on selling armed drones. China doesn't have those restrictions, so they can set up a drone factory in Saudi and sell them throughout the region. They're helping Saudi develop an indigenous ballistic missile program, reportedly. Again, these are things that Saudi typically would have gone to the U.S. for, but because the U.S. can't provide it, they go to China. But I don't see it like Russia, which is just kind of selling wholesale to as many vendors as possible. I think China's typically looked at the region in a more long-term approach, being seen in that kind of light as kind of profiteering or just isn't going to help them long-term to, to have a, a positive role. So I think they, they look at the reputational cost of that. But I think the most important factor beyond that is that the more important relationship for China isn't with any specific Middle Eastern country, it's with the U.S., and the U.S. remains the most powerful actor, extra-regional actor in the Middle East. And if China were to come into the region in a security role and start selling a large number of weapons and engaging with countries in security affairs, this would undermine those countries' relations with the U.S. It would make the region much less stable. It would become basically a theater of competition. And I think that's not in the Middle East countries' interests, and I think it's not in China's interests. I think what they would all prefer is a stable relationship with the U.S. and a stable relationship with China. And I think that's more easily accomplished if they hive off those, those things and, and, you know, say, China, keep out of the security realm to a larger degree, protect your interests, protect your assets. But China's economic first approach, I think, is very attractive.
Like you previously mentioned, the Build and Road Initiative, apart from uh, the idea of helping countries to develop and to maintain a peaceful relationship, I think there's also another purpose of this kind of uh, infrastructural project, and that is to kind of cultivate good relations between China and the Middle Eastern countries. So the so-called soft power. I'm wondering, because you are really on the ground, well, what is your observation of the Chinese soft power in where you are or in the Middle East in general? Do local people uh, perceive China in the very positive light or negative light. The Arab Barometer has been publishing some interesting polling data from the Middle East about popular views of China. And this is only in six countries. I can't remember off the top of my head which ones they were, but I think it's Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia. I can't remember the, the sixth. No countries in the Gulf. What was interesting is the questions indicated that people had a much more positive view of China than was expected. You know, this is over the past few years during the, the COVID era. And as you know all too well, across Europe, across uh, the Americas, across many parts of Asia, China's reputation has suffered over the past few years. In the Middle East, it's not been the case. And it could be because uh, many countries or many publics have uh, U.S. fatigue. They're tired of America's militarized approach to the region or, or because politicized agenda in the region. It could be just that China was very helpful during the pandemic, that it was able to provide a lot of uh, material goods and, and technical support and, and things about tracking and tracing and vaccines. But I think a bigger issue, honestly, is that China remains largely an unknown quantity in the region. It hasn't had a long-term presence here. What I've noticed from my time here, we don't tend to have a very strong area studies program in the Gulf. So you don't find a lot of Gulf students. There are some, but there's not a lot of Gulf students who are developing or producing knowledge about China. What most people know is what they see on TV. And what they see on TV tends to be hyperbole. China's the biggest, the strongest, the smartest, the fastest, the tallest, the, the bestest. So when I ask my students about China, they all have these very big ideas about how, how important it is. But if I ask them, Talk about China. What do you know about it? You know, can you name the president? Can you name a film or a novel or a poem or pop band or product besides a Huawei phone? Like, what do you know about China? Often it's very, very, very shallow. And I think that speaks to a bigger soft power projection problem that China has. You know, my students love everything about Korea. And as I mentioned, I lived in Korea before I came here. I was surprised to learn how excited my students were to learn about Korea, which is great because I, I love Korea. It's one of my favorite places in the world. But to find, you know, all of these young Emiratis who knew so much about it was shocking to me. Bollywood, people love India and, and Indian cinema and Indian food and Indian culture. They're very familiar with it. In manga and anime from Japan and stuff from Turkey. But China, no. I think part of the issue is the soft power products. I mean, when soft power works well, it's not a state-run initiative, right? It's, it's from the publics. It's from the creative class. It's from musicians and artists and filmmakers and, and writers who, who make great stuff that travels. In China, that's hard because most creative people have they either self-censor or they, they produce stuff that's mostly for domestic consumption, stuff that glorifies the party is going to be popular or stuff that tells a story that the CP, CCP likes is going to be broadly accepted. That stuff doesn't travel very well outside the country. I think the stuff that China does export, you know, things like educational opportunities are, are a good form of uh, soft power projection 
uh, language study with Confucius Institute's uh, media. They've opened a lot of different newspapers and media channels on the internet and uh, CGTV in Arabic. Um, so they're, they're doing a better job of trying to get their message out to Arab or Middle Eastern publics. But still, like people don't know much about it. And I think the inverse is true as well. I don't think China knows a lot about the region yet. Both countries or both sides rather can say a lot of nice things about each other, but it's a pretty soft appreciation of each other. It's a pretty shallow appreciation. That's not to say that won't change. Here in the UAE, for example, uh, they've introduced uh, Chinese language instruction in the national curriculum, the K-12 curriculum. So you're going to see a generation of young kids who in 12 years could come to my university and actually could know quite a bit about China. Saudi, I think, has implemented the same program. So that will change, but it's going to be a change that's going to take place over, over quite a while. It is kind of similar here in Europe, although I cannot generalize all European countries. My experience with European students, they are very keen in Japanese culture and South Korean culture. But when it comes to China, it's more practical reason. Yeah, my parents say this is a very important country. I better learn about it. <laughs> but then when it comes to entertainment, these kind of things, I think the younger generation definitely prefer Japan and South Korea. It's interesting to find some similarities here. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for sharing your insight with us. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, Julie Yuwen Chen at the University of Helsinki, Finland, and Jenison Fortam. He's assistant professor of political science at Zaya University in United Arab Emirates. And he's also a senior non-resident fellow at Atlantic Council. His recent book is published by Rowlich. It's a handbook on China and Middle East relations. It is really worth reading. And so please check it out. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.